Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. If you have been desirous to grow as a spiritual man and woman of God, that is, you're growing in the Holy Spirit, and you're desiring to grow all the more in the life and nature and character of Jesus the Christ, then I can almost be certain you've spent time and are probably continuing to spend time in Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8 is that chapter in the Bible that really encapsulates the rhythm and the dynamic of a man and woman who walks in the Holy Spirit. The entire Christian life, if you will, can be uh, learned and discovered and ascertained from this particular chapter. There's just so much in Romans 8. And I want to take you a little bit through this chapter in uh, the course of the many upcoming sessions and just show you how beautiful and perhaps even how simple the spiritual life is presented by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. And I want to start us off with Romans 8 verse 1 and just spend several sessions together exploring this dynamic of being in Christ. But first, let me read Romans 8 verse 1 for you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That really is the issue of Romans chapter 8. The first seven chapters is almost an issue entirely of condemnation, of falling short. And it concludes there in Romans 7 being miserable. But then, of course, he has shown us already in Romans 1 through 7 a little bit of the path of how to be recovered to God and righteousness, how to be justified before God. And here in Romans 8, he's going to show us how to live out that justification and how to come into this freedom and how to do this by being one with Christ in spirit. So come with me and let's begin an exploration on the spiritual life as depicted from Paul's letter to the Romans, and particularly chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 starts off with this um, culmination of seven chapters that's uh, rather dark and gloomy. It's almost like the book of Isaiah, where if you read carefully the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you will readily discern it's dark, it's gloomy, there's a lot of condemnation, there's a lot of wrath, there's a lot of judgment. And then just like that, 
in chapter 40 of Isaiah, the tone changes so drastically that people even imagine there's two uh, authors to the book of Isaiah. Some even argue three authors. And if that is the case, then we have to argue in Romans, there's two authors to the letter to the Romans. The author who wrote the first seven chapters, and then the author who might write chapter 8, uh, chapter 12, etc., etc., and onwards. Because they are so stark, um, so different, so dichotomous. The first chapters of Romans is rather dark, because in it, the sin... Um, of man is laid bare. In it, the wrath of God is revealed. And uh, you read Romans 1. Uh, everybody that doesn't know God, you're guilty. You come to Romans chapter 2. Those of you who do know God, who are Jewish and who live by the law, even if you broke one item of the law, you are guilty of breaking the entire law of God. And there is wrath on you, there's judgment on you, there's condemnation on you. When we come to Romans chapter 3, uh, it's a rather dark chapter, you have to admit, uh, when uh, the apostle says, there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. There's no one who chases after righteousness. Everything that we say and everything that we are is just poison. We are infected with sin. And then the glorious statement, which is actually not glorious at all, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's rather depressing. It's uh, rather gloomy, a lot of condemnation, a lot of wrath. And he begins to sort of highlight a little bit in chapter 4 how you can become a son of God like Abraham. He didn't do things for God. He just believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. There's a little glimmer of hope. In chapter 5, little glimmer of hope where he says, I can now, because of Jesus Christ, have peace with God. And I am justified. I can be declared right with God. And then um, um, he goes later on in Romans chapter 5 and he says, Well, the first Adam brought death onto us all. He gives us a little bit of hope there in chapter 4 and in the initial stages of chapter 5 when he brings down the gavel again. Yeah, Adam brought death. And through his act of disobedience, we have all died and we're all under this, this, this condemnation. He talks a little bit about Christ as the last Adam that obeyed. So a little bit of glimmer of hope again. In chapter 6, um, it's sort of a transition chapter, if you will, to the good news where he talks about how we can identify with Christ and His death and how we can be resurrected with Christ and how we can present our body now to the service of God, to be a slave of God and to be an instrument of righteousness. And he begins to give us a couple of hints and tips as to how we can live out this new life before it all comes crashing down. And I mean crashing down big time in chapter 7. Turn with me briefly to chapter 7. Verse 18. He says, I know that in me it's a knowing because of my track record. It's a knowing because of my, my life experience. I know in me. In my flesh, 
dwells nothing good. That's a rather depressing verse because most of us do think in us there's actually some good. Paul then goes on and he says, yeah, maybe there is some good within me. He says, at times I do desire to do good. I want to do good. I set my mind on doing good. But then I find that there is evil that is present with me. And he gets into this tension of wanting to do good, but he can't fully do the good. He tries to avoid evil, but he can't escape doing that evil. And he is in this tension, and it's a rather depressing, dark, gloomy chapter. And uh, he gets to verses uh, 22. He says, I do delight in the law of God. I actually want to please God. I want to live right. Verse 23, but I see a different law within my body and it is warring against the law of my mind. That there's a conflict within me. And he says, it's making me a captive to the law of sin and death. The law of sin which is in my members. And then verse 24, dark, gloomy, wretched man that I am. Your Bible may even say despicable, deplorable, miserable, pitiable, unhappy man that I am. And uh, that sums up the first seven chapters of Romans. And um, if you were to just have those seven chapters, this is decidedly not good news. But of course, the message does not stop there with wretched man that I am. Then he asks this question, who is going to do something for me? Who's going to deliver me from this predicament? I'm in this tension. There's death operative within me. There's nothing really good within me. And at times, I do want to do good. And I do agree with the law of God. And I, I do chase after righteousness. But I feel a law within me, an evil, sin that, that, that takes advantage of me, sin that twists things, sin that manipulates things. There's this entity living within me that is absolutely crushing me. And if I want to rise up above it, it crushes me. Wretched man that I am, who? And I love that phrase in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Who will deliver me? Because a who is the issue of the gospel. And for every religion ever invented by man, what is the issue of their gospel? All the religions of the world knows that something's off. We all know something's wrong. All of us have tried to do good and we fall short. And we all know something glorious is amiss within us. The Buddhist knows that. The Confucianist knows that. The Islamicist knows that. The Krishna knows that. We all know that's why we invent what's. Those what's are called religions. We all know I want to do better. We all know I should stop doing evil. That's from Romans chapter 1. There is a law that is within my conscience that knows I'm off or I'm right. So much so that Paul says, you're actually without an excuse before God. So everybody knows there's a kind of a God. There's a kind of a righteousness. We all know evil is evil. And hence, 
the endeavor of all religions is to craft and formulate what's the systems and the the industry of what avoid this do that try this don't try that and so we all live in this dynamic of what more can be done even the jewish people even the pharisee in particular in god's law he gave 613 watts do this don't do that and god gave those watts then the pharisee comes along and it's as though those 613 watts just didn't work for him he needed more clarity and so he uh, some scholars say the pharisee added some 2000 additional laws to an already very rigid system of what's. And so he began to not only live by the 613, but by his own what's. And ever since the Pharisee, every single person has invented a what system, a formula, and an industry, some mechanical religious observance to Try to be perfected. Then comes the Apostle Paul, who was perfect in the what system of religion. In Philippians 3, he speaks about his zeal for the law. And when it came to upholding the law of God and all the what's, he was actually blameless as far as he was considered, considered himself. He was... Um, not only flawless in the law of God, but he was also a Pharisee. And by that he's saying, I went an extra mile. I did just a little bit more to uh, impress God, to present myself to God, and to prove to God that I'm devoted and loving. But then, of course, glory to the Lord, the apostle had an encounter with the living Christ. And a new life came into him. This life was not another list. It was an actual person. And so when he comes now and he writes out this gospel, uh, it is is tough. It is dark. It is initially very gloomy. Everyone has sinned. And the experience of that sin tension within me is unhappiness, misery, wretchedness man that I am. And then he says, if you look careful in your Bible, who will deliver me? Praise the Lord for the woohoo. <laughs> Isn't there a band called The Who? Back in the, yeah, they got it straight from Romans chapter 7. And here then is the issue of the gospel. Will you and I be yoked to more what's? Or will you and I be yoked, like the apostle, to a who? That is, Jesus the Christ. So look here, he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then there is a little glimmer of hope, again, as a transition sentence in verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God. And with the flesh, the law of sin. And now, 
the glorious chapter 8, where he starts off and he says, there's therefore now no condemnation. Therefore, um, because of this man, Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. In the previous chapter, he spoke extensively as to his desire to do good and his discipline to avoid evil. In his mind, he wants to serve the law of God. He even agrees that the standards of God, those 613 standards, he agrees with his mind, this is good, this is holy, this is righteous, I should be doing this. And there's an ache within him to lean into that. But there is something that trumps his ability. And it is this entity in his being called sin and death. So he leans into God, but sin and death takes advantage of him. And then there are those who leans into the law of God and they keep it meticulously. And they uphold it perfectly. But sin and death still take advantage of them. How? By inflating them with pride and self-righteousness. And it's the upholding of the law that becomes a badge for show-off. Look at me, everyone. So even if you kept the law perfectly, there is an entity and a force that will usurp that perfect law that you keep and turn it into a self-righteous badge. And even then, you fall short of the glory of God. So can you see we're between a rock and a hard place? You keep the law, you're condemned. Why? Because of the pride and the ego that, look at me, the show-off, the braggadocious, external, existential way of living. And of course, that rock in a hard place goes without saying, when you break that commandment, you're also under the wrath of God, so to speak. So Paul then, in his presentation of the gospel, he will constantly speak about a person, a person, a person. And here it actually is in this verse 1 of Romans 8. Look at this for just a second. He says, There is no condemnation, no wrath, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the first thing that I want to highlight for you here in Romans chapter 8. The first chapters, chapter 1 through 7, is an issue of condemnation. Why? Because there's a standard, and I am supposed to now live up to the standard. But if we read carefully, then we will come to understand that the law, as perfect and as holy... And as righteous as it was, was not able to empower you to live up to its standard. The law was just ink on paper. Or to be more specific, um, written with the finger of God on stone tablets. And that's all that it was. It's from the mind of God. It's from the heart of God. It is the will of God and it's the desire of God. But it is given to man as just a copy in your face. Here's the do's, here's the don'ts. 
But the law being made out of stone, the law being made out of rock, was not able to empower you, even though it was perfect in its what's and what nots. Can you follow with me? So, the law fell short in anointing you, supplying you, because it's not a living entity. It's the wish of God. Yes, it is the will of God. Yes, it is the mind of God. But it is, in a way, lifeless. It doesn't breathe. It doesn't walk. And so that kind of a... um, powerless command hung over the Jewish people for the longest time. And no matter how hard they tried, it could not enable them to live this out. Paul comes on the road of Damascus. He has an encounter with a living person. And this living person is not just a law code in front of him, but this living person, by his spirit, came into the apostle, into them. And so Paul comes into Christ, and Christ comes into Paul. It's not just like a law code over here, outside of me, and I'm over here. Something mystical now happens. Christ, by His Spirit, climbs into the being of the apostle. And from within, Christ will now, by His Spirit, energize this man to live a transformed life. Where before, the law told you how to live your life. You need to be transformed. You need to be changed. You need to do and don't. But there was no power within except this law of sin and death. And even with my mind, I looked at the law of God and I said, Amen. I am going to obey my parents today. I'm going to honor my parents today. Today I will not covet. I agreed with my mind. It's good to be content. To be satisfied. I agree with that. But as soon as I saw that t-shirt, oh, as soon as I saw that watch, oh, as soon as I saw that woman, that house, that car, that money, oh, something rose up within me. I didn't know it was there. And all of a sudden, I begin to fixate on that watch, that car, that money, that position. And now the war starts because something is magnetizing me to that woman, that money, that car, that fill in the blank. And so in my mind, I'm like, don't do this. Don't, don't. You know you're going to get in trouble. You know this is going to lead to death. In your mind, you know that. That's why Paul would say you're without an excuse before God. But I feel like something just walks me to that that particular situation. And before I can blink, I'm playing with fire and I'm getting burned and I burn everything around me. What is that? It's a law of sin and death. Why? Because you were conceived in sin and death. When... Adam and his wife had children. The law of sin and death, the DNA of sin and death was passed on to them. And so Cain and Abel were infected with sin and death. 
They knew that they should do good. We even in the Bible have a record where Cain knew he was to bring um, an offer, offering of sacrifice to the Lord. He knew what was right. But he chose to go a different direction. There was a law that took a hold of him, sin and death. And so that's the condition of man. We're in sin and death. Sin and death is in me. I was conceived in sin, uh, David would say. And so when you're in that matrix of sin and death, every single time sin will triumph over you. Why? Because sin, ladies and gentlemen, is the nature of a fallen angelic being that is a higher classification of being than you are. You're made of dust. You're made of a solical human life. But when the man and the woman ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they took into them the power, the life element, the DNA, if you will, of a fallen being. And I can prove that to you from John chapter 8, that if you are in sin, not in Christ, you are actually in Satan, the devil. And he is the father of those who live in sin. So his DNA, which is a, a DNA strand, and I use a metaphor, forgive me, the DNA of Satan is that of a fallen being, an angelic being, if you will, which is a higher quality of being than a, a human flesh and blood being. So with your humanity, you may say, I agree with God. I want to serve God. But there is something greater in you that usurps your humanity, that stomps it down, that triumphs over it. And so there's this war within you that wants to please your Creator. <laughs> but before you blink, you're in sin and death being killed, seized, manipulated. It's as though it jumps on you and derails you. And that's why Paul would say, wretched man that I am. So Paul then comes with a proper understanding of the gospel. It's got nothing to do with abstaining from food, going to temple or synagogue. It's got nothing to do with cutting your hair a certain way, dressing a certain way, eating a certain way, getting circumcised a certain way, keeping the law anymore. Paul's gospel has to do with, are you in Christ and is Christ in you? The only way to get free from condemnation, according to the gospel, is to live in Christ and to have Christ live within you. Beloved, even though you may not be of Jewish descent, background and heritage, and you weren't reared under the 613 laws of the Torah, you and I, as Westerners, we still put laws upon ourselves that we invent. And by those very laws, we condemn ourselves. And so in a sense, 
we are not all that different from the Jewish people. Have you ever put a law upon yourself to do good in school? Put a law upon yourself, I'm never going to cuss again. Have you ever put a law upon yourself, I'm going to try to get perfect A's this semester. Uh, this semester I'm going to try to help three people. I, I'm going to give some of my money to an old lady. I'm going to help a grandpa across the street. Those things are not overtly in the Jewish law. But what you and I do is there is a law within you, in your humanity, that wants to do good. And so you are going to script what you think good is. I'm going to dress a certain way. I'm never going to watch movies of a certain kind. I am not going to search things on the internet. I am never going to read that or smoke this or drink that. I'm never going to keep company with this or that friend. Uh, I'm never going to tell a, uh, an off-colored joke. So many of us make these laws for ourselves, including, I'm not going to drink Coca-Cola. I'm never going to eat meat. I am never going to um, fill in the blank. And what we do is we create our own Ten Commandments, our own standards of what we perceive as perfect living. And often, as Westerners, we hold those standards before God and say, Here, God, look what I've done for you. So we are very much pharisaical. We may not literally study and try to obey the Ten Commandments or let's say even the 613 commandments of the Torah. But I have done many, many, many things as a kid. Um, I kicked my dog. This is an example. Don't report me to the uh, animal abuse agency. This is an example. So as a kid, I uh, kicked my dog. When I kicked my dog, something inside me said, that's not cool, Francois. And then I thought about it a little bit. I'm like, yeah, that, that is not cool. Okay, I'm never going to kick my dog again. And so I make this vow. Oh, I'm never going to kick my dog. I'm never going to kick my dog. And tomorrow I get into a squirmish with my dog. My dog yaps at me or bites me a little bit. And next thing I know, there goes a leg. <laughs> what just happened? With my mind, I created a law. But there is always an entity in you that will trump anything you try to do good. And here's the converse also. I make a, a vow. I'm never going to kick my dog. And so five years go by, I've never kicked my dog. Guess what those people will do if they're not in Christ? I'm going to write a book as to the seven steps not to kick your dog. I'm going to make sure all of you understand that I started don'tkickdogs.com. And what people will do who succeed by their own laws is they will hold it as a badge for this is a man that pleases God. Look at me. Can you all see? Now here's a standard of holiness. We do it in every culture. In every culture. And yet, Paul would say, before God you're condemned. The only way that you can escape this condemnation is to be in Christ. So here it is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This sentence is powerful because of these two things. Condemnation belongs to those who are in the flesh, in their natural humanity, and under the auspices of a foreign 
alien, angelic being's life. And that life is the law of sin and death. That's a fallen life that's been added to the human life in the Garden of Eden. But then here's the good news, and that's why chapter 8 is such a glorious chapter, because it's the chapter that talks to me about how I live in this Christ, how this Christ lives in me, and it has everything to do with the Spirit. That's why he would say, for the law of the Spirit of life has set me free. So here he makes the statement, Christ or condemnation. But how do I get free from condemnation and into Christ? He will explain. You have to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will turn everything around. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ is an eternal Spirit that's uncreated. It trumps the life of a fallen angel. There's a little bit of a hierarchy in the universe. We have many passages that explains the hierarchical systems of the universe. But we know that God is uncreated. So uncreated God, eternal spirit, trumps all angelic life, trumps all fallen life, and even trumps the human life. So when Christ by His Spirit lives in me, then there is a law in me, a life ability within me, a supply within me that the law could not do. There's a living person in me that's the eternal God. And therefore, I can then live the overcoming life. Amen! I can live the overcoming life not because I keep the law of Moses or overcome the law of sin and death, I can now live out the godly Christian life as God intended for me to be. Only because of Christ in me, the hope of glory. The Spirit of Christ in me, the hope of glory. This is the issue now that we will tackle in our upcoming session. <laughs>